It's going to be a funny day. I'm doing my second ever stand-up routine here this morning. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even like a Christian version of Dave Chappelle or uh, Chris Rock. Chris Cross, maybe. That would be the Christian version of, I don't know. That was a really bad band back in the 90s when I was in high school. <laughs> Remember that? Who remembers Chris Cross? Oh, so many of you. Remember how they wore like their pants backwards? And I never totally understood that. Like, where, where do you come up with this kind of stuff? Oh, we're about to um, head into a, a really heavy passage of Scripture. And Jesus doesn't tell any jokes before he starts into this. He just kind of lays down the gauntlet. I'm not as confident as Jesus was. So um, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna, literally going to tell you some jokes here to start things off. So it's really, this is actually happening. I can't guarantee you'll laugh or like them. But um, here we go. Take notes, all you aspiring comedians. All right. Joke one. I don't think comedians actually say that. First joke. Here we go, everyone. I've got 16 jokes. Joke number one. They don't generally do that. But All right. Husband speaking to his wife. He says, when I get mad at you, you never fight back. How do you control your anger? Wife, I clean the toilet. Husband, and this would be like a real conversation in our house. Husband, how does that help? Wife, I use your toothbrush. <laughs> I don't think, I asked Rochelle in the first service if she's ever used mine. She said no, but. Joke two, <laughs> just keep this going. You know, I just want to preface this by saying I have nothing against women. And it's hard to find jokes on anger that are appropriate for everybody here. So I had to filter out all the ones with swearing and really rude. So anyway, I wasn't left with much. So um, I didn't write these. This woman, a woman goes to her doctor complaining about her husband's anger as he seems to just flip out on her and lose his temper constantly. The doctor makes a suggestion. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Anytime you feel like your husband is about to flip out, I want you to go to the kitchen, pour yourself a glass of water, and then take a swig and keep swilling it around in your mouth until he calms down. The woman, puzzled but in agreement, says, I'll give it a try. Thanks, doctor. Two weeks pass by, and she goes back to her doctor and says, that suggestion of yours worked like a charm. Anytime my husband became angry, I just swelled the water around in my mouth like you said, and he calmed down. How in the world does a glass of water help? The doctor replied, the water itself doesn't do anything. I think you'll find it's keeping your mouth shut that does the trick. <laughs> and that could be equally true for men too. So let's, I'm, I don't want to characterize that as a woman's thing. All right, I'll just move on right now. All right, joke three. This is, this is less invasive. How do you handle a redhead in anger? Anybody have a guess? Gingerly. Oh, that's good. Right? All right. I feel, I can see how comedians really feed off the energy of the room. All right. Last one. A woman's anger is like a check engine light. There's no easy way to know what caused it. So just ignore it. 
and hope it goes away. That's my, my personal strategy for the first 10 years of our marriage, which was clearly not working. So anyway, and if I offended any of you with any of those, it's, it's good because we're talking about anger today and how to deal with it. So, hey, let's stand. I'm going to read the scripture for this morning, Matthew 5, 21 and 26. All right. Lord Jesus, help us. All right. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Jesus, we just come under your word today. We ask that you would shape us and form us by it. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak into our lives to bring conviction, correction, um, counsel in any way you want to. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can take your seats again. All right, so Jesus is, uh, he's in his great Sermon on the Mount here. And if you're just joining us, we've been walking through uh, this for quite a while. We've talked about the Beatitudes being the culture of the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are like not um, sort of moral imperatives that you have to try and kind of aspire to, but Jesus is just, just stating the reality of what the culture of heaven looks like in the human life. And then Jesus has moved on from that now, from describing what it's like when heaven invades our lives and begins to take over. Now he's talking about heaven and its culture and how it actually changes our relationships. So Jesus is moving from kind of like a vertical orientation to a horizontal orientation. And over the next uh, sort of uh, chapters in Matthew, um, Jesus begins to expand on this, how his teaching and how the gospel and how the kingdom uh, must actually impact our, the relationships that are around us. We're, we're going to kind of put this on pause after today and step into our year-end series. So we're not gonna come back to this for a little while, but this is what Jesus is kind of working at here. Pastor Alex last week uh, preached on the section just before this. So Jesus has just uh, spoken to them and said, look, like, uh, I am I'm the fulfillment of scripture. I'm not, I'm not undermining scripture. I'm not reducing the authority and weight of the Old Testament. I'm actually the fulfillment of it. And then he begins in practical terms to teach people how that is so and how it must impact their lives. So he says to them, you have heard that our ancestors were told. I just want to make a couple points about that in verse 21. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Um, the first 
just point I want to make is that Jesus here is being very specific. He's saying, you heard that your ancestors told you this, not scripture. This is Jesus actually beginning to speak into and say, there's this oral tradition of interpretation. You've heard the Bible interpreted this way, or you're following these traditions of interpretation, but I'm going to tell you something different. Jesus here is not undermining scripture. He's not changing what Moses said. He's saying, look, like you've interpreted it this way in your life. There's all these traditions that you're following, but I have something to say about them. The reality was in Jesus's time, there were a group of religious leaders called Pharisees. And in addition to the Torah, the Old Testament of our Bible, in addition to that, they had many oral traditions that were equal to scripture in authority. And people followed them just because that's what they were told to do. And that's how they were told to live. The problem became that those oral traditions began to undermine the weight and the force and the impact of scripture. And so Jesus is sitting in front of his people and he's saying like, I know that you've been told this, I know that there's stuff around relationships and anger that you practice, but I have something different that I want to bring to your attention. And then he quotes here from Exodus 20, uh, 13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17, that forbid us from taking another's life, another human's life. And he says, but I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, like you have this oral tradition, you have this tradition, and then you have this legalistic way of viewing scripture where you say, hey, I haven't murdered anyone. Therefore, I'm off the hook. I don't need to deal with issues of the heart. I don't need to deal with anger or bitterness or contempt or any kind, anything like that. I haven't murdered anyone. I fulfilled the letter of the law, but Jesus now begins to take us deeper under the surface issues of Scripture to reveal the intent and heart of God behind it. See, it's not about just saying, hey, Jesus, you know, like, I'm doing good in this way. I haven't killed anyone yet. Or, or look, God, I haven't been unfaithful to my wife. I didn't actually have intercourse with anyone other than her. But then the, underneath that, there's a whole list of subtle compromises that we're prone to make and excuse ourselves because we haven't done the thing that's clearly in Scripture. And what Jesus is doing is he's probing behind that boundary that God creates of not taking another human life. He's probing under that to reveal the intent of God and then how we're supposed to follow in response to that. So he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He's not changing the writing of Moses here. He's fulfilling it. And Jesus is setting a new trajectory so trajectory, um, like scholars use that to talk about kind of the, the flow, the arc of things from Genesis to Revelation. Like, where are they going? And what we find, uh, which is exhilarating but terrifying in the Sermon on the Mount, 
we find Jesus setting a trajectory that does not loosen off the weight of the Old Testament and its demand on our life, it tightens it. And this is actually in contrast, especially in our day and time, there is a, a concerted movement within sort of the, the Christian Western, especially but Christian world that says, no, 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 we're under grace, we're under Jesus, so we need to loosen off the, the, uh, the call of God on our life to, to lead pure and holy lives. Like, we don't need to. We need to loosen off the teachings of Scripture and redefine what they mean, change their meaning to give us this breathing room of grace. Like, like we need to redefine what sin is and sexual purity is and human identity and personhood and all of these things. There's scholars that are specifically working to do that. But the trajectory that Jesus sets is not to loosen off the call of God on our life, it's to tighten it. He actually tightens it and he says, look, like you may have thought you were in line because you didn't actually go out and kill somebody, but there's a heart behind this commandment of God that probes way deeper into your life. And that's where Jesus begins to just dig away. The trajectory he sets does not loosen the moral, ethic, or standard of life and purity God lays out. It actually calls us higher and deeper. Jesus deepens their understanding of what God's commandment actually was. Frederick Bruner, um, I've quoted him lots in this series, got a masterful commentary on, on uh, Matthew. He says, to the thesis of not killing... Jesus adds the epithesis, which means like the stronger or more powerful thesis of not resenting. So Jesus is going way deeper here. This isn't just about killing. This is about something deeper in your heart, a, a, a more powerful thesis of not resenting. Jesus has not canceled the commandment. He has fulfilled it, filled it full of meaning, deepened it, and clarified its meaning at the root. For at the core of the commandment against killing is divine displeasure with contempt for human beings. The meaning of Jesus's command in its innermost core is this. You can write this down or just log it in your memory. This is the meaning of Jesus' command in its innermost core, according to Bruner. Don't stay angry with, don't nurse hatred against any brother or sister. So it's Jesus is digging now into, and he's saying, look, like you've been letting yourself off the hook with how you are engaging relationally with those, how you're dealing with confrontation, how you're dealing with anger and frustration and bitterness and resentment and rejection and contempt and all of these things. And Jesus is saying like, uh, it doesn't matter that you haven't killed anyone because there's a great evil stirring in your heart that needs to be addressed by me, that needs to be confronted. Another theologian, Scott McKnight, said it this way, prohibition of murder is the surface expression of a deeper divine intent. God's people aren't to be angry at one another. If one masters one's anger, murder will never occur anyway. 
So Jesus is going, hold on a minute. Like, I don't want to just address murder and like following your anger to its furthest development. I want to actually speak to the condition of your heart much before that, way before that. I want to deal with what is in your heart that would lead you to hate someone or show contempt to them or speak against them or harm them or hurt them or take revenge or action against them. So Jesus is looking behind the surface action into our heart. And he's saying, what is going on in your heart to produce the hatred or conflict or division or anger or bitterness that is found there. Another theologian, Craig Keener, says it this way, God never wanted people merely to obey rules. He wanted them to be holy as he is, to value what he values. So Jesus is saying we need to take a deeper dive here. Because murder, yes, God forbids it. But there's many things that take place in the human life and heart well before that, that need my work. And Jesus continues, if you are even angry with someone, that word in the Greek is orizo, and it literally means is being angry. It's in the present participle, active. It means being angry, carrying anger, or remaining angry. In our current sort of expressions or idioms, you could say it's nursing a grudge. So Jesus is not here talking to a a single moment of anger. He's actually uh, talking about a way of living and nursing anger in us. Another way you could say is that Jesus is talking about a carried anger or a continued anger. Resenting might be the best way for us to use modern language for it since resentment is continuing in anger. There's two words in the Greek for anger. Um, Barclay says it this way, not Charles Barclay, but uh, theologian Barclay. Um, These two words, thymos and orge, and actually, just we, we won't dive into this, but that's actually a root word for our word, orgy. So that's actually, just set that in your mind behind, intentional chaotic activity that actually undermines and disrupts and violates. That's kind of where this comes from. The Greeks said that the first word, thymos, is like a flame which comes from dried straw. It quickly blazes up and just as quickly dies down. That's not the word Jesus used here, although that doesn't let us off the hook for explosive anger moments. That's just not what Jesus is specifically referring to. Orge, on the other hand, was described as anger become inveterate, long-lived anger. The anger of the man who nurses his wrath to keep it warm. That's what... Barclay said about this. Anger is often involuntary. It's often like uh, clinical experts would say it's a secondary emotion. 
Like you, you don't sometimes know that it's about to hit or come. It's often involuntary. And Jesus isn't speaking to that specific aspect of it. He's speaking to the moment when anger is birthed in you. What do I do now? So this anger that's been provoked in me, how do I now carry that in a godly way? What do I do now that it's been birthed in me? How do I carry it and what do I do with it? A clinical description of anger, if we were gonna use one, there's many. This is from Tristan Collins uh, in her book, Why Emotions Matter, fantastic book. We have expectations about how people should behave and how society should operate. Anger is the surge of energy and aggression we feel when those expectations aren't met. So anger is that surge of energy when our expectations of what should be happening in the moment is not met or our expectations of another aren't met, like how we expect to be treated, how we expect to be spoken to, how we expect to be loved and nurtured and all of these things. Anger is this surge of emotions when expectations go unmet, when our vision of what should be happening right now in this moment is violated. She goes on to say, it's a powerful thing and a powerful feeling, a strong sense that you are right, that someone or something else is wrong and that the situation needs to be rectified. Paul kind of describes it this way, and this might be the most helpful in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, don't let, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry for anger gives a foothold to the devil. There's a couple things I just want to quickly point out here. Again, Paul seems to be drawing a distinction, not to that moment that anger surges, but then what we do with that moment where the anger surged. So he's saying, don't sin as a result of coming under the influence of your emotion, of anger, of your response. Don't let that lead you into sinful words or actions or activity. In your anger, don't sin. So he's not talking about somehow living this perfect non-human life even where we never get angry. He's saying, there's actually a way for us to deal with anger in a godly way that leads to the fruit of God's kingdom in our life. But then there's also other ways to deal with anger that lead to destruction. Paul then says, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. What Paul is not saying here is that within a 24-hour time period, you must fully deal with everything that's going on in your life, like this whole explosion of anger or whatever's going on. He's not saying like, like literally don't let the sun go down. He's saying you gotta be intentional about it. You know, and we all deal with anger differently. Rochelle and I deal with it very differently. She came from a family who was uh, just, it was natural for them to be very open and confrontational and get stuff out and like say stuff and, and work through stuff and process actively. I came from kind of like a turtle family where, 
when, like, when something was wrong, it was like, oop, my head goes back into the shell and I'm like waddling off. Like, let me get away from this. I want to avoid conflict. That's my, I would say up until, well, maybe still, I, you have a mask on, you can't talk. All right. Um, I would say, I didn't mean that meanly. That's, that sounded way worse than what was in my heart. All right. Um, but I, uh, I, I would say for most of our married life, like my goal was to avoid confrontation at all costs. One of the best ways I learned to do that was by going to bed earlier than her. And her body clock and mine are very different. Like 10.30, her body comes alive. It's like, you know, what, what activity can I do right now? What project can I start? Let's clean the basement. Honey, it's 1045. I don't care. It needs to be done. Or let's, let's bake a, a batch of cookies. It's 11 p.m. Or I got to start the turkey for tomorrow. Like, but it's midnight. You know? And, but for her, and her mom is like that too. It's like she starts massive projects after 1030. When it's 10, it's like it's bedtime. And in our marriage at first... Uh, we didn't have this kind of figured out. And so when we would get into conflict, often around bedtime or whatever, I would want to just go to sleep. Like, let me just sleep on it. And my goal in my head was like, I don't want to deal with this and tomorrow's a new day. So let's not talk about it. Let me just go to bed. And she's like, we have to deal with this now. Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down, you know? And like, and so we had this one fight when we were first married. We lived in an apartment in Beamsville up on the mountain. And uh, it was like really late. And I, I don't even remember what I did. Something really bad, probably. And so she was like, I'm trying to sleep. She's in the bed and she's like, how can you sleep right now? We have to talk about this. We have to finish this. And it got so heated, our neighbors beside us started banging on our bedroom wall. They're like, shut up, it's 1.30 in the morning. And, but she just wanted to deal with it. We've learned to come to a balance with things. And so what Paul is not suggesting is... Uh, that you have to deal with it right away in the heat of the moment where there's the potential to actually make things worse. He's just saying you need to be intentional. For some people, they need a cooling off period so they can think properly, right? So Paul isn't saying at your detriment even, you must take care of this. No, like let yourself cool off. Let God bring some perspective to you but don't just let it go. Don't just ignore it and believe this lie. Oh, it's water under the bridge. Like, don't need to deal with that anymore. We need to actually deal with it. The third thing that Paul mentions here is that our anger and the cultivating of it in our life has, has great spiritual significance. When we actually cultivate anger, Paul is saying here, anger can give a foothold to the devil. That word in the Greek for foothold is tapos, and it means inhabited space. Here's the nuts and bolts of what Paul is saying. If you persist in your anger, you will open a door to the enemy to give inhabited space in your heart and in your life. 
to disastrous and detrimental consequence. So that's why Jesus is so serious about this. Don't just think you can get off because you haven't killed someone, literally, because there's things going on in your heart that are opening the door to the kingdom of darkness and you are being enslaved by the demonic when you persist in living in anger. So here, Jesus goes on and he says, if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus here is rebuking our desire to minimize or justify the words we say. Oh, I didn't really mean it. That just came out. That bad moment, you know, I'm not, I'm not myself today or whatever it is. And he's saying, even when we say to people in a, in a flippant and dismissive way, oh, you're such an idiot. What's wrong with you? Why can't, why can't you ever get it straight? You're such a loser or you're whatever, fill in the blank. Jesus is saying those things in the eyes of God are tantamount to murder. Calling someone an idiot, the word Jesus uses there is raka and it's a contemptuous and condescending insult. Literally, it means empty head or feather brain. I don't know when the last time you used feather brain was in an argument. It seems so nice. <laughs> but it was flippant dismissal. Just that casual flippant, ah, oh, you moron. And the second word Jesus uses, if you curse, that's a word of abuse or disrespect, verbal contempt. So Jesus here is putting three sort of realities of anger together. Simmering, intentional anger, flippant dismissal, and verbal contempt. And he says all three of those will incur serious judgment from God. We can't create categories and then let ourselves off the hook. I didn't actually follow through with it, God. I just said it. Or I didn't even say it. I just thought it. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. They're all the same to me. R.T. France, another scholar, says these are not uncommon or particularly vulgar words. So Jesus isn't talking about vulgar, gross, you know, extreme language. He's talking about the everyday stuff that we just let fly. Jesus himself used these words in other contexts. But these words suggest an attitude of angry contempt. Jesus here threatens ultimate divine judgment on anger, even as expressed in everyday insults. It's not just about our actions or even our words. It's about our thoughts and our heart intent. That's what Jesus is getting at. Bruner again says, we think anger and dismissive words relatively trivial and unimportant. No big deal, we say. This command from Jesus retorts, big deal. Anger carried and vented, according to Jesus' astonishing assessment, is last judgment and hell-deserving crime. That's what he's talking about. So we need to be super careful that we don't 
give ourselves a pass on our perceived intentions. My dad taught me this, and I don't always practice this well, but he said to me a long time ago, he said, Andrew, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions or their words. So we give ourselves a pass all the time. I didn't really mean to say that, or you don't understand. I wasn't trying to hurt you with that, or, or wait, hold on, hold on. I didn't mean for this to become this kind of thing. We judge ourselves on our intention, but then when someone offends us or hurts us, intention is not part of our assessment of judgment. We judge them based on what they did or what they said. And Jesus is saying, you need to be very careful in how you assess judgment. So if anger is the response of our expectations not being met, right, in, in a simplistic way, then we need to be very careful in how we assess the heart intent of those on the opposite side of conflict. I have written here, ordinary insults may be revealing a deeper attitude of contempt. So what just flippantly comes out of our mouth, everyday sarcasm, demeaning conversation, cutting remarks may seem really ordinary, but maybe Jesus is getting at a deeper issue in our heart. Another scholar says, anger and harsh words, in short, are not just shortcomings among many other relatively harmless weaknesses we have. Oh, I just have a short temper. I just say stuff and I don't mean it. I just, I, I, I don't, I don't, it's not in my heart to do it, but I just do it. No, that's not the way that Jesus is viewing anger. In Jesus's judgment, these are grievous sins to be exercised at all costs or else there will be the most severe judgment imaginable. But then our heart goes, well, Jesus was angry and God is angry sometimes. And the answer to those is yes and yes. But God's anger is not like our anger. And we use the one or two instances of Jesus expressing anger as justification for our own anger. And we use the Old Testament instances of God, uh, you know, operating out of his anger and we justify our own use of anger. But there's a, there's a chasm between our anger and God's anger. We talked about God's anger in our, in our series, God Has a Name, in the summer. You can listen to that. What we forget is the overarching message of Scripture to us is anger is not acceptable ever. It's not acceptable. We can't control when it, 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 when it's spiked, but we can control what we do with it and what, how we process it. So we're going to face it. We're going to be provoked. Things are going to happen, but it's not okay for us to then sit in judgment that our response of anger is appropriate and okay. This is what scripture says. In contrast to our desire to find a way out, Ecclesiastes 7.9, control your temper for anger labels you a fool. Psalm 37.8, stop being angry. Turn from your rage. Don't lose your temper. It only leads to harm. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Colossians 3.8, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. James 1.20, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. 
Here's what D.A. Carson says in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There is a place for burning with anger at sin and injustice. Our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but at offense to ourselves. Listen to this. In none of the cases in which Jesus becomes angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. Jesus wasn't angry because somebody ticked him off, because somebody said something offensive, because somebody hurt his ego. More telling yet, says Carson, when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried, illegally beaten, contemptuously spit upon, crucified, mocked, when in fact he had every reason for his ego to be involved, then, as Peter says, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. We need to actually repent, I think, we need to repent for somehow justifying our own interpersonal relationship and anger and bitterness and contempt for somehow making that equal to God's holy and righteous anger. Jesus wasn't flipping his lid at people because they offended him personally or insulted him or violated his ego, when Jesus walked and expressed the anger of God, it was because it was a, a measured response to sin and injustice. It was a measured response to the enemy's destructive power on the earth. Even Jesus's most famous example of turning the tables at the Sermon on the Mount, most scholars argue that was the week before his death. Jesus had been going to the temple since he was 12. He saw those very money changers hundreds of times. Jesus turning the, temp the tables up and, and getting angry was not an emotional, uh, you know, ignited flame in the heat of the moment. It was very calculated. It was very thought out. Actually, I think it's in John's gospel. It says he went to the temple the night before to observe everything. Then the next morning he came and he overturned the tables. He wasn't flying into a fit of rage. It was anger because of the brokenness of sin and how the religious system were holding people back from really experiencing God in a profound way. Our anger so often, so, so often is not like God's anger. I just want to invite Liz to come. I just want to hit a pause here for us. Because really, you don't need to hear words from me about this. What we most deeply need is just the Holy Spirit's work in our own heart in this area. I just want to invite you just to close your eyes for a few minutes. And I just want to ask Holy Spirit in your, in your goodness and your graciousness and your peace and, and mercy, would you just come and illuminate the depths of our hearts right now? 
And just, I, Father, in Jesus' name, in this time right now and with our lives, I just forbid the enemy of God from locking things away in darkness or hiding or secrecy, for in any way inhibiting the Spirit's work to bring light and life and healing to our hearts. And so we just want to ask you together, me included right now, Holy Spirit, are there any areas of our heart or our life where we are holding resentment toward others? I just want you to pray that. If you can, just, just ask him that. Is anything that Jesus has spoken here true of me? And if people come to mind, their names or their faces or circumstances come to mind, I just, I, I just want you to hold that. Jesus is present. He is fully able to help us walk toward freedom in life, reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration. He's fully able to heal our wounded hearts and lives. But I just want you to hold that and just be willing to have the Holy Spirit just bring to light what's happening in your heart. And just as your eyes are closed, I want to read to you the words of Jesus again. If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar, i.e. if you're trying to honor God with your life and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, even if you're the one who's been wounded and offended and hurt, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. If that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. Just for a few more seconds with your eyes closed, I just want you just to ask God, just quietly between you and him, are there areas of my heart and life that need reconciliation, forgiveness? Am I holding a grudge or bitterness or contempt? And I just want to invite you, if, if that is true, it may not be, but if it is true, I just want to inv invite you just to just imagine yourself. And you can even use these words just between you and God. I just imagine yourself giving him that person or that circumstance or that event and say, Jesus, I want to begin to hand this over to you. 
I need your work in this area of my life. God, the longing of our hearts, even though we don't even realize it maybe a lot of the time, the longing of our hearts is to be at peace with one another in our marriages and in our families, in our work environments, in our social lives. Our longing is to walk in peace. And yet so often we are carrying the baggage of unprocessed hurt and offense and wounding and trauma. We're, we're deliberately stewing and we're deliberately nursing our grudges. And we just say, God, we can't keep walking like that. Our longing is to have peace with you and peace with each other. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you'd begin that process for us today. Amen. Just a few more thoughts here. Jesus is specific and he says, if someone has something against you in the Aramaic language, which Jesus was speaking, that word something is literally small, insignificant, or maybe even something you're not to blame for. Like it's so minor. You just wanna just like, I just wanna get on with my life and move on. Or I didn't even do this. I'm not the cause of this. And Jesus is saying, even if it is minuscule and insignificant and minor, if it's not even your fault, there is something that has happened in the spiritual realm as a result of this, that needs rectification and healing and restoration so that in the natural, you can receive that. Jesus's encouragement is don't just gloss over the little things. Don't just move on and believe, oh, time heals all wounds. It doesn't heal anything. Jesus does. Time doesn't. And so often we are just tempted to go, I, you know what, I just don't want to deal with that. That was so minor. I just want to move on. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you have to get radical with this stuff in your life. That last illustration of Jesus points to a sense of urgency for us. Scott McKnight said it this way, the hard work is acting on the intention and then living with the tension that is created by the action. There's no way to create reconciled relations with those around us until we intentionally decide to act on what Jesus summons us to do. We can't think it, we must live it. Settle matter quickly, settle matters quickly. There are no options here. Jesus calls his followers to be people of reconciliation. In fact, he warns his followers of final destruction if they walk away from that path. And some of you, there have been things in your life that are horrific and so 
violating and damaging and have had just left a destructive wake in their path. And I want you to know that Jesus wouldn't instruct us to deal with things if he did not have the power and capacity to fully restore and heal everything he's inviting us to bring into the light. I have one practical last sort of illustration with this. Mark, can you help me? Can you grab that easel there? You're way better Vanna White than the real one. just pulls the legs just pull out um many of us have read so often the words of jesus in matthew 6 in the lord's prayer give us this day our daily bread forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors the first step toward healing and reconciliation is forgiveness but forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same things Those are different processes and take different sort of actions and steps. And we get confused often. Like, what is Jesus even saying? Forgive us our debts. What Jesus is saying is that when things are done to us or by us, when, when things happen in our life, they actually take a withdrawal from our emotional life, our physical life, our spiritual life, our life in general. There's a withdrawal that happens. It's like money being taken out of your bank account. It's like somebody taking your debit card, going to the ATM and withdrawing from your account. And Jesus is saying, relationally, when conflict happens, when offense happens, when these things happen, there is a debiting from your account. Something has been taken from you that's yours, but it's been taken from you. And there needs to be a reconciliation on the balance sheet. So Jesus says, first of all, we need to deal with him. And I'm just going to write his name at the top here. First of all, We need to deal with him. Because of what he's done on the cross, uh, we have salvation and healing and freedom and mercy and restoration and all of these things. And those are freely given to us. So in our bank account, the bank account of heaven for our life, I'm sorry, not everybody can probably see this. It's very detailed graphically. You can see my gifting coming out here. Um, But in our currency of heaven, Jesus has said, I've already done for you everything you need for life and godliness. I've actually loaded your account. You have all of the resources. You can take money out again and again and again, and it just magically fills up. Wouldn't that be the best thing ever? But I've already done for you everything you need. I've put a a deposit into your account that can never be depleted. And then he says, you got to get that straight first. Be reconciled to me first. Walk in freedom with me first. Walk in humility and forgiveness and repentance with me first. But then when it comes 
into our relationships, we get things kind of a little bit backwards. And we say, Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll receive what you put into my account. I'll receive that. But this person has now offended me. They've taken something from me. And what I want you to do, Jesus, is go just make it right with them. Go fix this. And so we ask Jesus to operate on this plane. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've put the money in your account. So they've taken from you, but you are the one that needs to settle the debt. This is the joy of forgiveness in the kingdom. I have the money in my account. The question is, am I gonna withdraw from what I have to give it to the person that's offended me? Am I gonna settle what is inequitable in our relationship? Am I gonna go to that person and say, look, I'm taking from what's already here. I'm not asking Jesus to come and do this for me. I'm doing what he's already given me the capacity to do. And in that way, I'm gonna release you from the debt that you owe me. I'm not just gonna pray, oh God, forgive me and forgive them. No, 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 I am forgiving them. I'm literally, and this is the language of Jesus, I'm literally forgiving their debt. They violated me, they have hurt me, they've wounded me, they've done X, Y, or Z to me. But Jesus, I have a loaded account and I'm willing in humility, in, in a reflection of the humility and surrender of the kingdom, I'm willing to settle that account. I'm willing to pay the debt that they owe. I'm not gonna expect them to pay it to me. I'm paying it to them. And this is the radical call of the kingdom of God on my life. Not that we demand repayment from the one that's wounded us, but we say, no, 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 I've got the money in the bank. I'm going to repay what you stole from me. I'm gonna settle this account. This is the forgiveness stage of things. There's a specific way that I do this and I just wanna walk you through it. This is a very specific prayer that I pray. And if you want, I, if you want to email me, I'll send you this in detail. Well, this is something and forgiveness is like, it's like draining a tank of gas. You know, wounds and offense in our life, they carry different measures of hurt and pain. And so a small thing is a little bit of gas, but a big wound is a big amount of gas that we have to pay. And so this prayer, if somebody has really hurt me or I'm experiencing pretty strong feelings of anger or bitterness, resentment, I come back to this like relentlessly until I drain the tank of bitterness and anger. And this is the prayer. You can write this down in your phone, in your notes or whatever, but here it is. Lord, I choose to forgive and then fill in the, in the name. It might be more than one person, but Lord, I choose to forgive four, and then you just list like what's happened. And this is where most of us stop. But this is only half of the story of walking in relational freedom and reconciliation and wholeness. Lord, I choose to forgive, fill in the name, four, fill in the name, 
Here's the next part. That caused me to feel. So this thing that's been done to me, maybe decades ago, has caused deep insecurity in my life or a feeling of rejection or abandonment or whatever these are. God, this thing that that is broken between us, it's not just the thing that happened, it's years of trauma and wounding and pain. God, I want you to show me what is in my heart, what am I feeling so that I can take those feelings, that emotional pain, and pay the debt. I'm not gonna charge it to their account. God, this, this thing that, that has wronged me has caused me to feel, and this is where I just sit with the Holy Spirit. What's in my heart right now? I'm learning to do that, not just say, I forgive them for this and move on and grab my coffee and go, but no, 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 I forgive them for this. But Holy Spirit, I'm gonna give you a few minutes now. Show me emotionally what has happened in my heart and in my life. And he'll bring up things. Andrew, this has caused you to feel rejected. It's caused you to feel abandoned or it's caused you to feel whatever. There's, there's so many. And then I, I literally name those things. And I bring them out into the light. These are consequences of this action. And this is what I pray after that. I'm willing to release this person and the emotional pain and consequences that's so key they have caused me. I'm not just forgiving them for the thing. I'm forgiving them for the pain and the consequences that I've felt maybe for years or decades from that. And I ask you, Jesus, to take back the ground I've given the enemy through my bitterness. I now yield that ground to you. Then after that, I take a few moments to bless the person that has hurt me. And this is hard at first. Often it's very kind of reluctant, like, God, I just bless them. I hope they have a good day, you know? Pray that they don't get in a bad accident. If you if you cause an accident, that's okay. But you know, but over time, uh, so I'm telling you, sometimes I do this multiple times in a day. When I notice uh, anger or resentment or contempt stirring in me, I'll come right back to this, and I'll. Uh, this is like this is warfare. This is battleground stuff. I go through it, and then I begin over time. What I see is my prayer for blessing in their life is not just like uh, this wimpy prayer, but it's God, would you do in them everything I want you to do in my life? Would you bless their family? Would you cause them to be fruitful? God, would you cover over their offenses? God, would you lead them powerfully? Would you do things in their midst that only you can do? God, everything that I, I'm compelled to pray for my own family. God, I pray it for them and many times more. And we begin to drain that tank of bitterness and anger and hurt and resentment and fill it with blessing and goodness. And that way we break the spiritual bonds of the enemy and begin to walk in freedom and peace and life. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's got a way for you and me to live that is not bound up in hurt and in pain and in crap that you will not deal with. 
calls you and gives you the chance and me to live in freedom. Very lastly, thanks for playing so long, Liz. Forgiveness, that's this. Reconciliation is a different issue. It takes a different path and a different process. But I wanna just point you to Matthew 18. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan. What is Jesus saying? Restoration can only happen face to face with the parties that have been wounded and done the wounding. In church, we have a hard time with this. It's like, well, that person hurt me, so I'm gonna go talk about it and use spiritual language. I'm gonna go pray about it with this other person. We don't deal with it. God is calling us in humility and grace together to keep short accounts with each other. Not talk about it with people that have nothing to do with it, but keep short accounts with each other. And there's a process to reconciliation here from Jesus in Matthew 18. Why don't you stand with me? I'm just gonna, I will let you go have lunch. Truly, I say to you, <laughs> that'd be my closest gospel. I will let you have lunch. Last thing I wanna just leave with you. Again, in Matthew 18, Jesus is connecting forgiveness to spiritual authority and power and freedom. He says, I tell you, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Here's my encouragement to you. I didn't even say this to the first service. Maybe it wasn't for them. But if you refuse to heed Jesus's words, you will have no spiritual authority. You will have no ability to resist the work of the enemy in your family effectively. If you choose to live in bitterness, contempt, anger, hurt, whatever, if you choose to live there, you will give away your spiritual authority and your ability as a son or daughter of God to resist effectively the plans of the enemy for your family and for your life. That's why Jesus comes down so hard on this because there's a spiritual reality attached to it. The kingdom of God, his culture is vertical and horizontal. Let's pray. Father, we, we really, really need your help with this. And I just pray even now for a spirit of hope that with you, we can accomplish all things. There is no wounding or trauma or hurt. There's no pain that you cannot heal. And so we're just asking for your help with that. Father, I pray for those who are here who feel bound and crippled by the pain and trauma of their past. Father, I just ask number one first right now for just a revelation of your strength and of your caring, merciful, good and compassionate heart for us, for them. I pray that you would put uh, practical steps in place 
in their lives to walk into freedom from anger and all of its effects. Jesus, we need your help in this area of our life. We give ourselves to you again today. Thank you for the hope that we have this week to walk this out in you. In Jesus' name, amen.